this morning we have my good friend and uh, superintendent, uh, regional or district overseer for the Evangelical Free Church, uh, Pacific Northwest, Bruce Martin. And last time I gave an intro, um, I botched it, and I'm going to let you do it however you want this time, buddy. So come on up, Mr. Bruce Martin from Eugene, Oregon. Let's give him a welcome. I don't remember how badly you botched it, Ed. Do you want to remind us? Well, I just, can I? No. (laughs) (laughs) I apologize this morning. I, uh, man, I was reprimanded as I came into the the building. Um, Guy laid me low. He just said, man, didn't you get the memo? If you're going to preach at faith, you got to show up in a three-piece suit. And the guy that said that to me, Marty, <laughs> was wearing a straw hat. Can you imagine how confusing that felt? So I, I do apologize. In my role of leading the Pacific Northwest District, I have tried to do one thing, whether I'm working with churches in transition, looking for a pastor, or developmental with, with leaders and, and, and pastors, or, or working with, with churches who are going through hard time, I... I try to keep one thing in, the, in, the, in, the, in this bullseye. For myself, it's been terribly beneficial right? because uh, it, it, we can make this thing so sophisticated, so complex. And the more we have in tools and understanding and Bible translations and on and on and on, the more we can go deep, deep, deep into the rabbit hole. And I love the, the simple clarity of Jesus from Matthew 25. This is a thing that keeps me coming back home again and again and again. Where he says to me and he says to you, folks, all of God's revelation, everything he has ever given a human being, finds fulfillment in the life of a person who loves God with all his heart and soul and mind who entrusts himself to Father. That's what he's saying. Who's willing to let God be God to you. Not living like an orphan, but living like a dearly loved son or daughter of a father who is enough for you. And then he said the the, the scripture is fulfilled in the life of a person who loves himself, herself well. I'm 66 years old, and it's taken me far too long to understand what he means in that. To pay attention, to appreciate, to celebrate who I am. Some psychologist made the wry observation that human beings were the only creation on the planet that has self-awareness. And he says, this is a head-scratcher because he wouldn't have a practice, he wouldn't have a counseling practice if it wasn't true that the vast majority of human beings try really hard to be somebody they're not. 
My wife smiles at me from time to time and says, Be yourself, man. Everybody else is taken. Trust me, that is not intuitive. And it's, it's going to be a hard battle for you as a human being if you want to get serious about discovering who you are and walking in it. But Jesus says that's a precursor to his final word in Matthew 25. Right? All scripture is fulfilled in the life of an individual who entrusts himself, herself to Father, who loves himself, who loves herself well, and who loves others. It's my contention that if we don't know how to love ourselves, then we sure don't know how to love other people. So I think it's worth listening to Jesus. And uh, I don't think we can assume that because we're scholars of Scripture, that these things are apparent to us. Right? I'm talking about a, di- a difficult subject this morning, and, and people would laugh at me if they said, <laughs> in a half hour you're going to... You're going to talk about the question of how we change. And I'm going to try. And maybe all I'll do is stir the pot a little bit. But I'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 12. But before I do that, I want to just think about the individual who wrote 1 Peter. Uh, if we read somebody's writings... And, and we understand some of the most formative events in their lives that helps us understand what it is they're saying and perhaps even why they're saying it. And so it's worth stopping and saying, who is this guy, Peter? And I'm not going to do an elaborate biography. I'm just going to, in a pretty clumsy way, paraphrase Luke chapter 22 because it's the most, in my opinion, the most formative moment season in Peter's life. Right, here's the deal. The crisis has been building in Jerusalem. Everybody knows it. The religious leaders are gaining more and more steam and they're working even across the table with people who've been their adversaries and enemies in the past to try to set a trap to do away with Jesus who is disrupting their game. And it's the Passover. And Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover feast. And I don't know what the buzz was in the room, except that I think maybe these guys thought that this was the pivotal point. Like any time now, we are going to be standing in complete victory because Jesus is the Lord. After the feast, Luke says these guys are elbowing one another. They're throwing elbows around this question of who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, you know, if you're going to anticipate that this big movement is going to splash in front of you in relatively short time, then there's, there's a speculation about who's going to be running the show, who's going to be sitting in places of honor, right? And this is what's going on, and Jesus does this masterful thing, which, by the way, He still does. Right? Um, The resurrected Christ, that's not just a title, that's a reality. He is with you right now in your heart, in, in your spirit. The Spirit of Christ is with you. 
and his manner has not changed. He does not impart a ton of information to you for the sake of making you competent in managing that information. He does with you what he did with his disciples so obviously 2,000 years ago. He uses the circumstance that you are in right now presently, not in church, in your life. He uses the circumstance that you are in as the curriculum for where He wants to take you. His way is just in time, not just in case. And so He says to these guys, He's going like, you know, you guys, you're missing the point. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about title or positions or power. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about, oh, take a wild guess, servanthood. The one who would be greatest among you will be the servant of all. Right? Having said that, the next words out of his mouth in Luke 22 are Simon, Simon. Now, I'm going to use a little imagination here. I taught all three of my kids how to drive. And it was fascinating to me. It's like in the first several weeks of teaching them how to drive, they were like hanging on every word I said. Why? Because they had to pass dad's test. They ain't going to get the keys until they show they're competent. And so we'd get in and I'd run through the deal like, is your seat adjusted properly? Are your mirrors adjusted properly? Is the radio turned off? I didn't have to ask them to put their cell phone away because there was no cell phone. Can you imagine a day when there wasn't a cell phone? But I tell you, their day existed when there was no cell phone. Before you back out of the driveway, have you looked both ways? And I'd get this like, hey, okay, okay. But something began to happen within about a month, maybe a little less. I'd catch these kind of subtle eye rolls. You know what I mean? They're not going to say, shut up, Dad, I got this. Because they know that I have the power of the key over them. But they try this silly game of listening without listening. I know what you're going to say. You've said it a thousand times. That's what Peter was doing. That's why Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon! Because Simon's sitting there rolling his eyes a little bit saying, hey, not the first time around the block on this lesson. When are these lugheads going to learn it? Hey, Jesus, maybe if you let a fresh voice teach it, they'd get it. This is who we are. This is who I am. This is who you are. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Next thing he says, it's not for Simon alone. Jesus is pulling back the curtain on the scheme of the enemy of our souls. 
He is doing the same thing to you. Mark my words. He has one agenda. And Jesus exposes it here. He is asked to sift you as wheat. He wants to separate you from the Father's heart like a thresher separates grain and chaff. That's his goal. Jesus goes on and says, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And the Spirit of Christ is praying for you that your faith would not fail. And then he says something here that's just a shock to Peter. And when you have turned back, what? I mean, that's like me saying to my kid, hey, you know, you're piloting a 4,000-pound chunk of steel down the highway with almost 200 horsepower, and, and when you go off the road into the ditch, I'll send a truck for you, and if I have to, I'll go visit you in the hospital. What kid is going to receive that as anything that's possible? Oh, Dad, you're being dramatic. Just stop it, right? This is what Jesus said. He's trying to separate you from Father, Peter. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. But when you turn back, turn back from where? Peter can't comprehend it. He says, when you have turned back, then you'll be in a place to strengthen your brothers. Peter says, I think you're talking to the wrong guy, Lord. I mean, this conversation has taken place in front of his peers. This dynamic has shifted dramatically. I think you got the wrong guy, Jesus. I'll go with you to prison if I have to. I'll go with you to death. Jesus doesn't argue with him. And you know, he doesn't argue with you either. He doesn't argue with me. He just, he just shows us. And the question is whether we can see or whether we are willing to see what so clearly sees into us. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, before sunup, before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you know me, and you know the story from here on out, end of Luke 22. This upward spiraling intensity of reaction and response. Peter denies and denies, and then forcibly with cursing and body language, denies. And Luke says at that moment, in the early hours of that 
morning, the, the rooster crowed. And Peter wept bitterly. Why? He had other options, right? He did this with an audience, which I presume included some or all of the other disciples. He, he could have said, well, you know, the circumstances were hot. I mean, we don't know what's going on in that room across the way. This is not what any of us expected. Soldiers, arrests, spears, beatings. Peter could have said, I, look, man, I lost my head for a minute. This has been a long day, you guys. The Garden of Gethsemane. The Passover. This trial that's just gone way, way, way into the night in the early morning. I'm not usually like this. But he didn't. He didn't. And in John chapter 21, at the end of that gospel, Peter has gone back to what he knew before he encountered Jesus because, well, that's what he knew. Right When you're staring into failure, at some point the biggest question is, not why did I fail, but what am I going to do? And Peter reached for the option that his shame allowed. He could make a livelihood, he knew that. He was a fisherman. And John says that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who is resident in you and me in the Spirit of Christ, appeared on the shore and he asked Peter the most difficult question that anyone whom you have betrayed could ask you. Because the denial, the betrayal, was more than just an I don't know him. This was tearing down the reputation of Jesus. This was invalidating Jesus as one of his closest followers. But not only Jesus, everything he stood for, everything he was about. So that's a hard question when Jesus shows up and says to Peter, not, why did you do that? That would actually be an easy question. Because I'm kind of a jerk. I'm a coward. But he doesn't ask that question. He says, Peter, do you love me? Ask it three times in three different ways, and each, each response, then feed my sheep. I can't look at 1 Peter chapter 2 without understanding this is the man who wrote 1 Peter. If I don't understand that, I start to get these lofty, strange notions about what change is all about. But I trust in Jesus, and he sprinkles 
magical stuff on my head and I become like him and I change and I'm a new person and I'm set free. And it turns out that the work of change is much more difficult than that. Peter prefaces these words in 1 Peter chapter 2 with these words, All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. There is one thing that lasts. Right? And, and, and people look at this in different ways. Do you know, as a, as a human being, you alone know that you have an end. That you have an expiration date. My puppy Winston has no idea that he walks in the world in such a way that someday he will not be. I never find Winston in the corner of the living room preoccupied with the question, who am I? And what kind of a legacy shall I live? Leave. But human beings... Man, this is the troubling amount of angst that we carry as human beings because we know that there is a beginning and we know that there is an end. And some people wrestle with this in ways that they try to plant their flag furiously on various mountains to leave a legacy of, look who I was. But some people chase the question, Forget about what my output is. Forget about what I do. What is the most useful way for me to use these years in my being, in the way that I am? Not what I do. But on how people experience me as I do what I do. Beginning in verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, having rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. A, a warning, our religious eye falls to those categories that are listed in verse 1 at the front. Get these things out of your life. And we're earnest about that. This week I'm going to work on this thing so that no malicious thought and no malicious words come out of my mouth. And you're doing pretty well until Monday morning and the guy cuts you off in traffic. Or you're dirtying pretty well until Sunday afternoon after church, that guy walking his dog lets his dog use your nicely manicured front lawn as his bathroom and doesn't clean it up. Peter's not saying eradicate these things from your life. What he's doing is, like when you work a jigsaw puzzle and uh, you have that box somewhere out there in front of you, where every once in a while you look at the picture on the box and you, and you see how you're doing with assembling the pieces, right? Are they, are they in the right corners? Are they, are they fitting together? Where does this section go? That's, that's what he's using this for. He's saying, 
there's only one command in this thing, and it is crave pure spiritual milk. And at the risk of being too provocative this morning, I'm going to say out loud, what he's saying is not become competent in Scriptures. He's not saying don't become competent in Scripture. But the people who are harassing Jesus and would harass the movement of the faith throughout the first centuries were people who were far more schooled in Scriptures than I will ever be. These were individuals who part of their training had to memorize the entire Scriptures along with the commentaries that explain them. They knew what Scripture said. You are a spirit being. As somebody has said, you are not a human being with a spirit. You are a spirit being who is temporarily inhabiting a human body. And when the reality of those words from the end of chapter 1 become your experience, the grass withers and, and the flower fades, the better part of you will continue. Your spirit. And when Peter says crave spiritual milk, he's talking about the Spirit of Christ with your spirit, meeting you like Jesus met Peter. Not working with the Scriptures to become more and more competent to pilot our way to, to find strength to keep on doing what we're doing but to learn how to receive the Spirit of Christ who doesn't argue with you, who rarely shouts at you. But when we learn to pay attention to the Spirit of Christ, then we're on the track to doing what Peter says, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And he names the prerequisite, the, the, the absolute Bottom line necessity, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love the language here. He uses the word taste because that's a very experiential thing. He's not talking about going to your Bible and finding verses after verses after verses that say God is good. He's not even talking about going to biblical stories where various characters discover that God is good. He says, the foundation stone to become the man or the woman that you want to be that leaves a lasting legacy that's meaningful begins with this. In your experience, you have found that the Lord is good. Don't take this for granted. I was having a conversation with a guy who uh, lives a little bit north of here. He's been in church all of his life. He's never not been in church. We were having this conversation that went on for about a half hour, and it was pretty robust. And I finally said to him, Hey, so-and-so, can you, can you tell me two or three stories by which you were absolutely confronted with the goodness of God. 
And he looked at me and cocked his head and frowned and, whoa, I don't have that good of a memory. There's all kinds, I mean, God, you know, there's all kinds of things that God has done that show me his goodness. I said, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that. Can you give me two or three that absolutely sold you? And the reason I ask him that is because for the whole half hour, this guy who has more money than I will ever make in seven lifetimes, who has a very successful series of corporations, whose family is intact, who has kids and grandkids, who served as an elder in a church, who's led small groups in a church, who's led men's studies in a church. For the entire half hour, he was escalating his conversation about all of the anxiety he felt about his business and sustaining the trajectory of it, about the approaching retirement and whether he'd have enough money, uh, about the, the, the kids, the, the, the world that his kids and grandkids were having to go into, about one of the CEOs that he's hired, that now he's thinking that it probably not, wasn't a good hire and what's going to happen and the reputation of the, of the company around this guy. Man, he was amped up. And I said, hey, why don't you call me in a week? I, let's, why don't you just give some thought to the question that I ask you? Why don't you call me in a week? And he did. And he said, it really ticked me off that you asked me that question. Like, are you, are you, are you judging my faith? I said, no. Well, I don't really have anything for you. There's just all kinds of ways that God has shown in the Word. I, I woke up this morning, I went out on the back deck, and I saw the beauty of the sunrise, and it's like, that shouted to me that God is good. I said, you know, the reason I asked you is because I don't think that you can say God is good to me and allow your spirit to gallop in the emotional chaos that you were running with. The two are mutually exclusive. Either our Father has your back and you know it, or you're living like an orphan, scrapping and clawing for things, claiming the promises of God and hoping it works. And there is a world of difference. And Peter says, change begins at the point that you have tasted, that you have stories. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Let's not, let's not anchor that just in contemporary evangelical terms, can we? I mean, let's, let's risk letting, you know, the, the Jamaican Rasta man speak to us. Bob Marley, who says, there's only two paths in life. One is the love of power. The other is the power of love. Mine. There's no, there's, no, there's no middle ground here, folks. The path rejected by men is the vulnerable path of the power of love. 
Jesus says all Scripture finds its fulfillment there. Well, as you come to Him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices. There's that spirit deal again, isn't it? You know, you, you can't pray, God, help me. You can't, you can't pray, God, make me like you. Make me like Jesus. Without also a willingness to sacrifice deeply to find that. And ultimately, what the sacrifice is, is your life. As Paul says, you're a living sacrifice. And the dilemma for living sacrifices is what? The darn things keep crawling off the altar. Right? This is not a one and done thing. This is an orientation to life in which we say to Jesus, you are the way, and I'm not arguing with you. I've learned to live in this world around the value of the love of power, and I don't understand the power of love. Help me. As you come to him, the living stone, you are being built up into a spiritual house, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. And again, let's just defang the language here. Zion is anywhere the people of God are gathered. It doesn't have to be a crowd, right? Jesus said, when two or more are there, I am with you. Anywhere where there are people of God, earnest people of God, surrendered people of God, and He is there. He says, I've laid a stone in Zion. It's a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Isn't that remarkable? That you and I can live the kind of life that would be free of regret and shame? I think it is. I think it's pretty dang cool. The stone is the cornerstone. It's chosen. It's precious. And, and you know the picture, right? It's like, it's like the earth is made flat and then this specially chiseled cornerstone that comes from the quarry is laid in place and then the rest of the structure comes on that. Peter draws now his thoughts into the core of what he's saying. All of, the, all of this has just been preface. Sorry. Here's the real deal. Verse 7. Now to you who believe... Ah! Believe what? That's the $64,000 question, isn't it? To you who believe. Don't, let, don't just run over the top of this. Oh, I'm a believer. Believe. Believe what? Come on. To you who believe, what's the foundation 
of all change in my life with respect to the kingdom of God, what must I believe? What's that? No. Go back to the front end of this passage. So I took the time to say, telling the story of my friend who struggles with his anxiety and fear, even though he knows all of the Sunday school answers, because he has not tasted that God is what? What? Good. Good. To you who believe, believe what? Believe that God is good in everything that He allows and everything that He invites me into and everything that His Spirit whispers. Be careful here. It's not because He's restraining us or wanting us to live in a substandard way. It's because He wants to bless us with the kind of life that is free of shame and regret and pain. But to those who believe that God is good, this stone is precious. Believe me, Peter can write out of a first-hand experience it had nothing to do with his competence and his discipline and his success. He found that the stone is precious in the midst of his public failing and failure as he encountered Jesus who was not saying, you had your chance, dude, and you blew it. But a Jesus who says, now, let's come and do this, man. Now you get it. How counterintuitive is this? But to those who do not believe, hmm, I'll risk saying it again. Do not believe what? In the goodness of God. Experientially, right? This is not something that we discover because somebody tells us. This is something we discover because we have tasted the goodness of God. Well, to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, I'm going to not spend a lot of time on this, but what, what Peter is saying is, is that the the rejection of the cornerstone makes it no less precious. It just changes its purpose. When the, when the cornerstone is rejected, it becomes not a stability factor in the home full of shame or shamelessness that you are building. What it becomes now is something that causes men and women like you and I to stumble and fall. Not because God is unkind, but because there's only one way to do life in this world as Jesus' people. And it ain't the love of power. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Please, can we steer away from the kind of thinking that says, well, apparently God has created some people and their entire destiny is destruction. And it says so right here. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. 
buckle up, because this is not easy to hear. Nobody gets away with anything. That's what he's saying. You know, one guy says he's been in practice for 35 years, longer than I've been in ministry. And he says, this is absolutely true. I've never seen an exception to this in my practice. Sometimes people are 60 or 70 or 80 years old. By the time they discover that the foundation upon which they've been living their life has been toxic, they didn't mean to. It's painful to sit with people in that season of life. He said, what's even worse? Sometimes people have died. And 30 and 40 and 50-year-olds come into my office who are the product of homes like this. That's hard work. I don't say this in a, in a heavy-handed way. I'm just bottom-lining it. This is a scripture. This is the Spirit of Christ that's speaking to us. It's like, you know those exceptions that you make in your mind? Stop. Because you are going to experience the law of unintended consequences. Nobody gets away with anything. Even the filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, strange quote from him. I wish I'd have had a conversation with him after he filmed the Ten Commandments. He said this. He said, no one breaks the law of God. They only break themselves against his law. Wow, I think Peter would say, me too. <laughs> that describes my trajectory. Right? People don't change until the pain of continuing in their patterns becomes too great to bear. That's it. And if the life you're living is working good enough for you, then you're not interested in what the Spirit of Christ is saying to you. And I struggle with that. I, I, I have a, a, a good friend who pastored a church up in Anchorage, in one of our churches, and I was with him up there recently, and, and we were talking about change, and Bradley is wise, and he is a spiritual man, and he's, gosh, he's never been to seminary, but I'd sit at his feet any day. And, and we were talking about this, and I was kind of wringing my hands. I said, Bradley, it's just hard. We, we teach and we teach and we teach, but the one thing that we can never do is prescribe a path for people to hit the wall. And apparently, be, until people hit the wall, they're not open to change. And I was kind of expecting Brad to put his arm around me and say, oh, that's brilliant, Bruce. That's just wise beyond words, man. You've nailed it. We are in a mess, aren't we? He didn't. I hardly got the words out of my mouth. And he said, Bruce, people are stumbling all the time. They just don't want to stop and acknowledge it. Like a new friend of mine just said to me three, four weeks ago, 
Let's chew on this, Bruce. It's, it's hard to find shelter from the storm when you're dragging the storm around with you. When you are feeling the thing that Peter felt, that is the Spirit of Christ saying, look, there's something you and I needed to be doing business with. Your instinctive and sometimes forceful response is to blame and to make excuses or to use the circumstances as a justification for why a particular behavior was okay. It's your call. As I said, Jesus won't argue with you. And I say to you compassionately and as kindly as I can, just recall nobody gets away with anything. (laughs) There's one way to live. Jesus is not a dictatorial, forceful guy. He stands at the door and knocks and says, do you want the life that's really the life? Are you willing to sacrifice for it? Are you willing to sacrifice your ego? Are you willing to sacrifice your reputation? Are you willing to come humbly to your wife or to your kids and say, Holy cow. I need help. The option is to make a list of excuses and walk away justified, reminding yourself that it takes a strong, strong man or a strong, strong woman to put up with the things that you have to put up with. And all it costs you is your heart. You'll never discover who you're supposed to be, who our Father made you to be by His design and by His love, as you continue to try to be something that looks impressive. Yeah. I think I should stop there. And I think, I, I think I'll just say that, that what Peter says in these final verses is that essentially uh, we're, we're living in a world where hurt is all around us. Human beings who are afraid and feel shame and feel inadequacy and insecurity, they hurt people without even knowing that they're hurting people. And, and his invitation is, is, if you'll let the Spirit of Christ do business with you and in you, and something kind of magical happens. That people who blame you, because that's what human beings do. I'm unhappy, it must be because, well, I explained to you how Marty ruined my day today. If I feel inadequate, it's his fault. No, this is what the world does, right? But they also watch you and they see you when you have hit the wall and you're not ashamed of it. When you are able to say, I wouldn't wish this circumstance on anyone, but it has been priceless to me because in it, I discovered the extent of my Father's love for me. And I will never be the same. And when you can articulate that, with specific stories, then you encourage people 
who might also be experiencing the consequences of their choices with a life-giving option. That's what Peter says. On the day that God visits us, because he visits every one of us regularly. Right? Father, we understand grace as a provision for our sin. We understand grace as the expression of your willingness to place the penalty of our sin on Jesus who died for our sin. But I think in this generation we're reluctant to hear grace as a means to overcoming our failings and failures. For, for, for these women and men who are hearing my voice this morning, would you dial up our sensitivity in our hearts to the Spirit of Christ, who your word says is always standing at the door and knocking. There is never a time when he doesn't. And when you help us find the grace to at least reflect on what you are telling us as you use our lives and our circumstances as the curriculum for what you want to accomplish in us. I say with my brothers and sisters this morning, I love you. There is no doubt in my mind that the love you have for me has nothing to do with any output that I have. It's in the face of my failings and my failures and a resume that looks pretty horrible. I'm so grateful for the underpinning of this that when I lean back and I trust you, I always find you there to catch me. Even when it's at the 11th hour, even when I feel afraid, I trust you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.